1: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW avoid. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change? And when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts.
3: More than seven feet tall, over 500 pounds, bigger than any man, more manlike than any gorilla. Some believe that the legend is an elaborate hoax. But could it all be one of the biggest cover-ups in history? A global effort has begun. Secret files hidden from the public for decades, detailing every UFO account, are now available to the public. We are about to uncover the truth behind these classified documents. Find out what the government doesn't want you to know.
1: The truth is that so much which is called conspiracy theory is actually conspiracy fact. Not all of it, but enough to show that um,
2: the people that run the world are not the ones the news media tell us do. It's actually
0: quite
1: unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In
0: Larkness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and today we're going to talk about the psychology of conspiracy theories. In previous episodes, we've lightly touched on this topic. There's an endless supply of this sort of thing, but here's a few examples in the form of questions. Is the government hiding the truth about alien invaders? Is the government hiding the truth about Bigfoot? Are airlines dumping chemicals on us in the condensation trails of their jets? Was 9-11 an inside job? These are all pretty widely known conspiracy ideas, but if you dig a little deeper, they get stranger. Was the Patterson-Gimlin film the site of a Bigfoot massacre? Is FEMA stockpiling coffins for an American genocide? Is the U.S. military invading Texas? Is there a secret cabal that runs everything? Of course, you can even go deeper, and then things get ugly. This is a recurring one that upsets me. Is there a group running false flag operations using crisis actors to simulate shooting massacres in the U.S. and abroad? You heard that correctly. There are vocal groups who believe that Sandy Hook and the Orlando nightclub shootings and many other tragic events are not real, but are part of a conspiracy in order to do something. The something part's not clear, and despite a tragic recurrence of such events, it rarely takes a day before some conspiracy-minded person begins to suggest that such tragedies never happened, and they were all being manipulated by them, whoever they are. But I didn't want to do an episode where I try and prove that conspiracy theories aren't true. People do that. It's a good thing to do. But there's a certain inevitability to this kind of thinking, and I wanted to go a layer down below the stories and look at the underlying psychology of the conspiracy theorizer. So that's what we're going to do in this episode, because if you want to find out what a real conspiracy theorist looks like, chances are you need go no further than the nearest mirror. Monster dog. Rob Brotherton is the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. He has a doctorate in psychology of conspiracy theories and taught classes at the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths. That's where Chris French teaches, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. He was my supervisor for my PhD.
1: Oh, awesome. Well, he's a friend of the show he's been on before. I've, I've been following his work for years.
2: Oh, good. Yeah, he's a good guy.
1: He seems very nice. I'd like to meet him in real life. I'm, I'm hoping at some point to be able to come over to the UK for QEDCon. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, And maybe you get a chance to meet him if I'm in town. I don't know. We'll see. yeah uh, you know, I have a lot of skeptical heroes. He's one of them. So,
2: <laughs> oh, That's very flattering for him. I'll, I'll report back to him.
1: Okay, please do. So,
2: but this interview is
1: about you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. So how did you get interested in uh, conspiracy psychology?
2: So what happened was I was studying psychology. I was doing an undergrad degree in psychology, and from the beginning I was kind of interested in the weird side of it. So why we believe weird things, why people believe in ghosts and psychics and Bigfoot, and why we have false memories, why our memories don't always work the way we expect they would. So I was interested in that. And there was a a member of the faculty where I was studying at University of Kent called Karen Douglas, who was just getting into conspiracy theories at the time. She was planning some research. And so I had to do a research project as part of my degree And I thought that sounded really interesting. So I did that project with her. And she's still very active in researching conspiracy theories. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And the more I've researched it, the more interesting and the more important I think it is. So I kept it up. I did a master's degree and then a PhD in why people believe conspiracy theories. And uh, there's still much more to be done. So...
1: Conspiratorial thinking has a, a long history, and I guess that's kind of in keeping with your book's overall hypothesis about the origins of this kind of uh, – I don't know what to call it, the mental modality. But but I, I guess we should probably start out with defining what you mean by conspiracies, and it, that seems like a good place to begin.
2: Yeah, this is an important point. Just what exactly is a conspiracy theory? What makes it different from other claims, even other claims that invoke conspiracies but don't usually get labeled conspiracy theory? It's an important issue, and it's one that's often been overlooked, even by people studying conspiracy theories. There have been papers published on belief in conspiracy theories, but many of them haven't really taken the time to define what exactly is a conspiracy theory. And I think that makes sense, because everybody kind of knows what it is. We all have an intuitive definition. You hear the term conspiracy theory, you pretty much know what somebody's talking about. But of course, if we want to be a little bit more scientific about it, we do need to subject our intuitive definition to a little bit of scrutiny. And it turns out that it's not that easy. There's really no black and white dividing line between claims that invoke conspiracies and conspiracy theories. For example, you know you could say that uh, 9/11 was carried out by the members of the US government in secret, and that's usually most people will agree that's a conspiracy theory. But you can say 9-11 was carried out, uh, planned secretly by members of Al-Qaeda, and that also proposes a conspiracy, a conspiracy that was carried out successfully, but nobody calls it a conspiracy theory. And so there is a difference there. And so I spend in my book, Suspicious Minds, I spend a chapter dwelling on this issue of what is a conspiracy theory, how can we define it? And I think there is no precise definition, but there are some features that we can look out for. There are some characteristics that um, most conspiracy theories have to some extent.
1: Well, let's talk about those. Yeah.
2: Sure. So, for example, you can look at the characteristics of the conspirators, the people, the, the villains behind the alleged plot. And so, for example, conspiracy theories, the prototypical conspiracy theories, they'll propose these conspirators who are unusually evil. So, again, we know that conspiracies happen in the real world. People do plot together and get up to no good But they're usually kind of self-interested. Their motives are fairly petty and limited. They're not that ambitious. Whereas in the prototypical conspiracy theory, it's proposing this grand evil plot for world domination or, you know, to kill everybody off or get all the money, control all the governments, whatever the case may be. There are these unusually evil plots. And another characteristic of the conspirators is that they're unusually competent. They're unusually good at what they do. At making these elaborate plots and carrying them off and not getting caught. Nobody spills the beans again in real life. We know that people do conspire, but it's hard to keep it secret. It's hard to make such elaborate plans and to carry them off perfectly and to keep it secret after the fact. So those are two characteristics of the conspirators are unusually evil and unusually competent. And we can look at the kind of the, the logic behind the claims as well. And the kind of evidence that they're built upon. So, One element of the logic is that conspiracy theories are inherently unproven, by which I mean that built into the claims is this idea that the conspiracy is ongoing. It hasn't yet been fully revealed. Most people don't know that this is the truth. When I say unproven, I don't mean that just, you know, science or mainstream media popular wisdom hasn't accepted the claims. I don't mean they haven't been proven to anybody in particular's satisfaction I mean, like I said, built into the claims, they're saying that this is ongoing. This has not yet been proven. And another element of the logic is that they can't be proven false. There's no evidence that could prove the theory to be false. Any evidence that you can find in the real world would could be considered consistent with the theory. So if there's no evidence at all, well, you'd expect that because it's being covered up. If there's evidence that goes against the theory, well, you'd expect that as well, because the conspirators are putting out misinformation designed to mislead us. And so ultimately, there is no way you can prove a good conspiracy theory to be false.
1: Yeah, that that is always uh, fascinating me because and I, I realize my show, Monster Talk, typically we're talking about cryptozoology and that sort of thing. But it, it, I, my interests uh overlap into things like uh, UFOs, aliens, uh, well, even things like the JFK uh, assassination. Those kind of, um, if there is a an alternate theory, I'm always interested in hearing what it is and trying to understand why people think those things are true. And uh, I, I think uh, what you're talking about there is perfectly in keeping with uh, things like the uh, Roswell crash uh, I think people who are in the skeptics world, we tend to do research and find that there's lots of inconsistencies in the stories and that the original story wasn't nearly as complicated and the stories become more complex with additional evidence appearing from nowhere as the stories go along. So it's, it's got a lot of folkloric elements uh, to 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 seem like um, something that is just a, an evolved piece of culture. But for the, for the true believers... Well, you know, you know, there's misinformation efforts being put out by the government and they don't want you to know. And so when things come out like, "Oh, well, it was actually it it was a secret government project, but it was for detecting, you know, nuclear blasts and not uh, you know, not a crashed alien ship." Well, that's obviously easy to dismiss. That's just misinformation. And I you know, I it's very it's a rabbit hole. I don't know how
2: Absolutely. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that your interests overlap like that, because this seems to be part of the conspiracy mindset as well, or even a broader mindset. It's been called, uh, there's a sociologist called Colin Campbell, who calls it the cultic milieu, which is this sort of, he describes it as an intellectual underground where all sorts of weird beliefs go together. You'll get people who believe conspiracies, and they also, a lot of people have new age beliefs or paranormal beliefs. All these unorthodox beliefs tend to crop up together. And like you say, sometimes this is sort of a logical step. So if you believe that you know UFOs and aliens are visiting the Earth, then presumably somebody should know about it. But the fact that it's not widely accepted kind of implies that there is maybe a conspiracy to cover it up. Right? The government would probably be aware of it. And so the fact that they're not telling us that they're denying it suggests that there's a cover-up going on. So that's kind of a logical step. But there are links that are not so logical. So believing conspiracy theories, there's no reason necessarily why somebody who believes conspiracies would believe more so in psychic powers or alternative medicines and stuff like that. But all these beliefs do seem to go together according to surveys that have been carried out. People who buy into conspiracy theories are more likely to buy into these other strange beliefs as well. So it seems to be an element of the mindset just people who are more receptive to any kind of unconventional unorthodox belief anything that goes against mainstream wisdom
1: yeah it, it must be somewhat difficult um, to compartmentalize so many conspiracies which seem like they would have sort of some elements would be disconfirmatory to other elements so if you you know it if you believe that the Pentagon was struck by a hologram and a, and a bomb or, you know, versus a plane that crashed versus something else, some of those conspiracy theories seem like they would not allow for mutual belief, but I've seen online (laughs) people who are willing to believe lots of things that seem to be in conflict and it's no trouble for them. Apparently.
2: Yeah, this is, there's a study, a really clever study, I think by a colleague of mine called Mike Wood, And he looked at exactly this question. There are obviously conspiracy theories that are mutually contradictory. If one is true, presumably the other cannot be true. And Mike Wood used a perfect example of this, which is the conspiracy theories about Osama bin Laden. So he carried out this research not long after the raid in which bin Laden was killed a few years ago. And at the time, there were conspiracy theories which, on the one hand, said that well he wasn't really killed in the raid, in fact, he's been dead for 10 years. he died of some obscure disease and it's been covered up by the government all these years and on the other hand, there were conspiracy theories that said, well, he wasn't killed in the raid. in fact, he's still alive he's been held by the u s government or like put up in a hotel somewhere. So you have these two directly contradictory conspiracy theories. bin Laden cannot be dead and alive at the same time. sure so, bin Laden <laughs> Yeah. And so Mike gave people these theories, asked how much do you agree with these different theories. And what he found is that people who tended to believe one theory, to believe that bin Laden had been dead the whole time, were also more uh, sympathetic towards the contradictory conspiracy theories. They were more likely to rate the other conspiracy theories favorably as well, which on the surface of it makes no sense at all. How can you believe that he's dead and alive at the same time? But then what Mike did is he asked everybody this uh, sort of higher order question. How, how much do you think that the Obama administration is covering up some information about the raid? So this non-specific, more generic question, just there's something that we don't know. And what you found was that the people who bought into that generic claim that something is being hidden, those were the people who bought into the two contradictory theories. And so it's not that belief in one conspiracy theory is somehow making you more uh, open to contradictory theories is that there's this higher order belief about the world that there are things that we're not being told and that makes you receptive to pretty much any conspiracy theory even when they seem to contradict each other
1: so you i really enjoyed your book it's it's got a um a very conversational tone and it's Thanks. not it's not just a um it's not just a litany of here's some wacky things people believe it's, it's much more about the psychology and the psychological processes behind this kind of belief. So am I right? I guess one, one thing would be to say the point of the book, if, if you don't mind me summing it up this way, is that everybody's inclined to conspiratorial thinking. There, there's, there's no uh, – it's not like there's just a type of person who believes conspiracies. We're all uh, biased towards believing conspiracies. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. The the subtitle of the book is Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. Not and
1: they. I see what you did there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. That's very deliberate. We all have similar brains. Our brains work in the same way, and we're all drawn towards conspiracy theories. Whether you literally believe them to be true or whether you're just kind of interested, you find them entertaining, we all have brains that have evolved to to resonate with conspiracy theories.
1: So, you know, one of your chapters was uh, titled uh, What's the Harm, which is um, also the name of a website that one of my friends, uh, Tim Farley, runs talking about um, what's the harm of various types of paranormal beliefs and uh, different, you know, alt-med, that sort of stuff. Let's talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind, Uh, because on the one hand, as just sort of an intellectual exercise, there's nothing particularly dangerous about suspicion. You know, did Lyndon Johnson have Kennedy assassinated so he could seize the presidency? You know, whatever. Right. But, uh, you know, while personally as a skeptic, I'm inclined to believe uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy. uh, There are more dangerous conspiracies out there that have actual real world impact. Would you like to talk a little bit about some of those and how they've changed the world?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's worth reiterating that I think most conspiracy theories and most people who believe conspiracy theories are doing no harm at all. Most people don't make life-changing decisions based on, you know, thinking that Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy or 9-11 and things like that. Um, There are some studies that show that even belief in those kind of conspiracy theories can have some slightly innocuous effects. So people become a little bit politically alienated, less likely to vote in elections and stuff like that. But, you know, I think the people who are drawn to those conspiracy theories, they're probably not going to, be that engaged with political processes anyway but as you say there are other conspiracy theories that have much more tangible consequences and consequences not just for the people who believe the theories but for the rest of us as well and so an example of that would be for example the anti-vaccination conspiracy theories which say that vaccines have some terrible side effects like they cause autism or some other uh, illnesses like that and that basically you shouldn't Take any vaccines. You shouldn't vaccinate yourself. And if you're a parent, you shouldn't have your child vaccinated either. And so I'm sure many listeners will know that these, uh, at least the latest iteration of these anti vax conspiracy theories, started in the late 90s in Britain with a doctor called Andrew Wakefield, who published a paper and then had a press conference in which he said basically that he thought the MMR, the combined MMR vaccine, was dangerous and that people should avoid it. And it caused a huge panic in the UK for a few years. It was the most widely covered science news story in the mainstream media. And uh, vaccination rates fell. And outbreaks of the diseases became more common again. There was an outbreak in Wales a couple of years ago, a big outbreak of measles, which coincided almost perfectly with, you know, these children whose parents hadn't vaccinated them 10 years or so earlier. We're all going to school and all hanging out together and then somebody gets measles and it spreads through the whole group and a lot of people get measles. And it could have been prevented if they were vaccinated. Um, And so this is an example of when conspiracy theories go bad, they make people make bad decisions, um, such as not vaccinating their children. And there are other examples, such as the conspiracy theories about climate change, which say that, you know, climate change isn't really happening, it's a fraud cooked up by scientists or the government. And there's a study by another colleague of mine, Dan Jolly, and he just showed people information about the conspiracy theories, information presenting them in a favorable light. And people who read that information were less likely afterwards to want to take steps to protect the environment. And so, again, when you get a lot of people believing these theories, influencing their behavior, even in a relatively small way, it can add up and it can have consequences for society as a whole, not just for the people who believe these conspiracy theories.
1: It, it is interesting to me how how some of these things have become so politicized. Uh, the um, Is the climate changing seems to be a settled question among scientists, especially climate scientists. But what that means is uh, just in- impossible to really rationally discuss in social media. It's, it's like, and maybe that's not where it needs to be discussed anyway, but if politicians are going to do something about it, they have to know that they have the, uh, the will of the, the electorate behind them, right? And with so much confusion and conspiracy mongering and denialism, it, it's really difficult to make uh, reasonable political steps to try to fight these problems, and then the uh, the vaccination one, I find even more horrifying because when I was growing up, I'm old enough. I'm not quite fifty yet, um, but I'm old enough that when I was growing up, I knew adults who had had polio, so I, I saw the impact of polio on their withered limbs, and uh, you know, I knew people who knew people who had been in iron lungs and some of the other impacts that came from those diseases, and it's just oh it just makes me so upset and furious to see people rejecting one of the most um, astonishing discoveries of science but to to take this amazing discovery one of the most impactful discoveries we've made about how to fight uh, these diseases and to reject it because of a very 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 tiny statistical chance that something might go wrong and because of an overwhelming belief that there's a uh, that medicine is bad, and you know pharmaceutical companies are all bad, and that you know these things are poison or whatever, um, and that it's actually killing people in real life. That these bad decisions based on bad thinking are actually killing innocent people is deeply disturbing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, polio is an interesting case. I think it's Paul Offit, Doctor Paul Offit, who's written a lot about vaccines and the anti-vaccine movement. He pointed out that polio was really the last time. It was during this golden age of vaccines where everybody was pretty much on board with it. And really a golden age of science. You know, science was making huge leaps, producing technology that everybody could use. And everybody was pretty much on board. There was the March of Dimes in America where, you know, almost every American citizen sent in a dime or a little bit more of money to help combat polio. And part of the reason that I think Paul its suggests is that everybody was behind this polio effort to eradicate polio because, as you say, people, almost everybody had seen somebody or, you know, a friend of a friend who'd been affected by polio, and polio leaves its victims hanging around, you know, leaves them in iron lungs or with withered limbs, as you say. It's a very visible reminder of how awful the disease is, and so people understandably want to do something about it. Whereas with measles and things like that, you know, children get sick and most of them will recover within a few days or a couple of weeks. Um, But it does still kill people, but it kills them fairly quickly. So you don't have that visible reminder hanging around, you know, the unfortunate children who don't survive. They're not there to remind us how important the vaccines are.
1: That's true. That's true. And then uh, I think, well... I was going to say something about Zika virus. I don't know where that's going exactly. It seems to be getting a lot of press lately. But um if we find a lot of uh if they come up with a vaccine and then we also have lots of people walking around with uh microcephaly, then uh I, I imagine it will also be uh quickly taken up as uh it may be able to overcome some of that uh anti-vax inertia. But it, it is just horrifying to me because it's in, in pretty much every country has their own anti-vax movement and um I know at Monster Talks. We usually are talking about Stranger Things, but the the skeptical uh, society, like the skeptic movement as a whole, has a really strong element of uh, pro science based medicine. So I, that's one of the things I'm proud of, even though it's not my expertise area, uh, is that a lot of really good fighting has been coming against this kind of nonsense from a community that I consider myself to be a part of. So I like that. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if 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 there was a harm in Bigfoot, I, I you know I would be doing my part. But
2: <laughs> it's fairly harmless. Yeah,
1: I mean, he's mostly harmless. Uh, yeah, he'll <laughs> ruin your truck grill if you hit him. But you know, <laughs> what what kind of uh, common assumptions do people make about people, other people who uh, who are conspiratorially minded? Like it seems like there are a lot of uh, preconceived notions about oh, that guy is a conspiracy theory person. You know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think there are, there are a couple of stereotypes which are misguided. I think one that you hear all the time is that conspiracy theories are a simple way of explaining a complex reality. They're the people who believe conspiracy theories, they're somehow less cognitively adept, less intelligent, basically. And so they're going for these simple explanations rather than going for, you know, the reality. And... I think that's misguided in the sense that, for one thing, there's no data to back it up. There have been studies that have looked at things like uh, tolerance of ambiguity and need for cognitive complexity. According to these stereotypes, you would find uh, a correlation. So people who are more conspiratorial would have lower tolerance for ambiguity, lower cognitive complexity. And that's not the case. The studies don't back that up. And there's also not much of a correlation with intelligence either. And I think when you take a step back and think about it, it doesn't make that much sense either, because oftentimes the conspiracy theories are as complex, if not more, as the official story. You know, one that's gotten a lot of press lately is the idea um, that the Earth is not a sphere, that it's flat, which um, <laughs> got some attention in light of the, the diss battle between the rapper BLB and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, their Twitter feud, and then... DeGrasse Tyson's nephew put out a diss track, and uh, it was very entertaining. But, you know, it brought to light these flat-earth theories, and there are quite a few people who believe that. And I think it's one of the conspiracy theories, perhaps more than any other, that when you don't know much about it, it's easy to write it off and say, well, the people who believe that, they're just idiots. Like, that's crazy. How can anybody believe that? But when you look into it, they're not just, like pulling it out of thin air, the people who believe the flat earth theories, they have a lot of evidence, you know, evidence in air quotations that they can cite to back it up. It's not something that they've just made up. They've, people have done a lot of thinking about it and they have a lot of information that they can talk about, whether you agree with their conclusions or not. Um, It's certainly, it's by no means a simple explanation. In fact, they have to do a lot of contortions to get around modern physics and things like, you know, the problem of gravity and stuff if you're on a flat Earth. And so it's not simple. And I think – so that's one of the stereotypes of conspiracy theorists, that they're somehow simple-minded that I argue against. And another one is that conspiracy theorists are this paranoid fringe of people, a handful of people who sit in their parents' basements typing on obscure Internet forums – wearing tinfoil hats, these kind of weird, paranoid people. And again, that's not the case either. There are a lot of surveys into how many people believe various conspiracy theories. And the consistent finding is that they're more widespread than you would think. So when it comes to things like 9-11, depending on the exact question you ask, um, if, you, if you ask people just, do you think that the government hasn't told us the whole truth? Do you think there should be a new investigation? Then... Something like half of the American public would agree with that. If you ask more specific questions like, do you think the government knew about the attacks in advance and deliberately didn't prevent them? Then between like uh, a quarter and a third of people will agree with that. And a similar number, if you say, do you think the government orchestrated these attacks themselves? Around a quarter of Americans would believe that. And so these conspiracy theories and many others, they're not marginalized to this Paranoid fringe; they're widespread even within mainstream society, and that the word "paranoid" I think has understandably negative connotations. You know, you hear the word "paranoid" and you think about like uh, a beautiful mind. You know, people with schizophrenia having these paranoid delusions, but that's really not what we mean when we talk about. In the context of conspiracy theories, there has been quite a bit of research that finds a correlation between conspiracy theories and paranoia. So the more you believe conspiracy theories, the less trusting you are of your friends and neighbors and authorities like the police. But this is by no means an indication of mental illness. This is just mundane paranoia that, again, is much more widespread than you would think. So if you ask, you know, just regular members of the public, how often do you think that maybe your coworkers are talking about you behind your back? Or, you know, the last time somebody... Was staring at you on the train? Do you think they were thinking bad things about you? We all have these kind of thoughts from time to time, these mildly paranoid thoughts. And so it's not a huge leap to go from that to go to thinking, well, maybe, you know, somebody is planning something against us. Maybe the government is up to no good. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! computer solitaire
1: huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes
2: chumbacasino.com if you want nightmares you are in the right place I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is
3: genuinely scary.
2: That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history— Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there. In the dark.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> I guess one of the most famous, uh, conspiracies would be the, um, the elders of Zion, the protocols, of the elders of Zion, the, the anti-Jewish, uh, literature and the impacts that that had. I think in the book, you talk about, uh, some of the ways that those ideas influenced Hitler, uh, These, um, I mean, this is another case where conspiratorial mindedness, uh, if it doesn't cause racism, it it certainly feeds into it in a big way. Um, Have you looked in, is there any cases where people were educated out of their conspiratorial mindedness? And like, I'd like, I'm curious as to what happens when someone decides that a conspiracy theory is not true. Does it change their other beliefs Or does that ever happen? I don't know. It's, uh,
2: I think it's, it's rare. It's unfortunately (laughs) rare because like I mentioned, any evidence, if you already believe a conspiracy theory, you can take any evidence as confirming your conspiracy theory, even if all the evidence seems to go the other way. Well, then that's just exactly what you would expect if the conspiracy is doing its job. Right. And so arguing, debating about the facts rarely seems to have the intended effect In fact, if anything, it can have the opposite effect than you would hope. There's some research into something called the backfire effect, which is essentially when somebody believes something strongly enough, and even showing them evidence that explicitly contradicts what they believe won't necessarily change their mind. In fact, sometimes it can make them double down. It can make them even more convinced about their belief. And I think a good example of that is the people who thought, that President Obama was not born in the United States; that he was born overseas in Kenya, and you know maybe even that he's a secret Muslim and stuff. These rumors emerged in 2008, early in his presidential campaign, and they never really went away. Um, but he made efforts to to engage with the conspiracy theories from early on, early on and to combat them and make them go away. You know, he set up a website called Fight the Smears in which he um, said that he's not born in Kenya, that he was born in the U.S. He eventually released a short-form birth certificate. He got a doctor from Hawaii, from the hospital where he was born, to confirm the records. And ultimately, he put out his long-form birth certificate. And, you know, how much more conclusive evidence could you get of where somebody was born? But as soon as he put it out, there were people who believed the theories they started deconstructing it and looking at every pixel of the scanned document and of course if you look hard enough at something you're going to find anomalies and so they found these pixels that were like a different color and it wasn't folded in the way they expected and they even pointed out that the doctor's signature if you sort of turn it sideways it looks a bit like a smiley face so of course that's evidence that the forger's are they poking fun at us right that's their that's the mark of a good forgery is that they put in clues that it is a forgery apparently but the point is that even seemingly incontrovertible evidence isn't going to change everybody's minds because it can be interpreted in line with the conspiracy if you believe there's a conspiracy going on then of course they're going to put out fake evidence designed to throw you off the trail so would, you, so, s-
1: would you say that the uh, the conspiracy trumps the evidence yeah
2: absolutely (laughs) you could say that yeah i'm sure donald trump would agree yeah (laughs) Uh, but so debating about the facts doesn't really get us anywhere and that's why i wrote the book that's why i took the approach that i take which is as you mentioned not to just catalog these conspiracy theories and try and point out what's wrong with them but to point out this is how our brains work whether a conspiracy has happened or not And, you know, sometimes conspiracies do happen. There's nothing inherently, um, there's nothing inherent in these theories that means they have to be false. They could be true. But whatever the case, our brains are designed to make us see the world this way. And so if arguing and debating over the facts doesn't get us very far, then I hope that pointing out how our minds work and how they can lead us astray, and maybe that will be a little bit more effective in getting people to scrutinize their beliefs and maybe second guess them.
1: Yes, I think so. And I, I think in, in it, for what it's worth, I think it might give people a little more empathy instead of just dismissing those people as kooks or whatever other pejorative, easy shorthand they may come up with. <laughs> because it's it, those are, I mean, even though they have a strange belief, you know, they're people
2: just like us. So uh, Absolutely. And we all have strange beliefs more often than we realize or would like to admit. You know, these biases that I talk about in the book, they can lead people to believe conspiracy theories, but they're shaping our beliefs all the time in much more mundane ways that we often don't realize. You know, like confirmation bias, for example, you can see it just if you look at your Twitter followers and the newspapers that you read and the magazines that you read or the blogs, you know, and think about how many of them question... Regularly, what you believe. How many come from a different perspective than you do? I think most people, if you're being honest about it, you would find that pretty much everything you read, or at least the vast majority of it, agrees with what you already believe.
1: This is um, one of the reasons I hate uh, the Facebook newsfeed because it uses an algorithm to try to show you things that it thinks you're going to be interested in. And I would rather look at a, a live feed of all of the information that's being posted because if their algorithm is trying to find things I'm interested in, I may end up with a strange filtered view that only shows me information that supports my own belief system. And I do like to see other you know, modes of thought. <laughs> and I don't know that everybody bothers with that, but it, it seems to me that uh, it would be very easy for social media to – give everybody what they want and then it just further divides the country into strange or at least my country probably yours too uh into strange little pockets of uh, people who you know get an echo chamber of what they want right and and i think that's problematic i think uh, being exposed to other opinions is an important part of the human experience
2: yeah absolutely i mean like you say we all do that whether it's conscious or not and so these things, like social media, they're just giving us what we want, really. And, um, yeah, it takes conscious, it takes effort to to go against that. And it's not always pleasant for people. It's not always enjoyable to have your beliefs questioned.
1: Yes, exactly. Now, now, as a skeptic, I listen to a lot of pro-paranormal type stuff. As a liberal, I listen to a lot of conservative stuff. And I I try to just, you know... Keep a broad uh, amount of information coming in because, yeah, just for that very reason, it, it, it is too easy to have these confirmation biases. Um, just rem- pat us on the back and tell us we're doing fine all the time.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. But who doesn't enjoy that?
1: You know, Well, a little, <laughs> right, yeah. So... Uh, but, you know, a lot of the book that you have, you have these really interesting little psychology tests that sort of demonstrate these principles. And I, I don't want to understate how good that is. It's really good reading and it's very interesting. I, I really I love psychology. Um, it's, it's changed so much over the years since I left college. Um, it seems like – I think when I left sort of – it was like the death throes of the last of the – of the Freudians, maybe. <laughs> like, and now yeah. there's so much more experimental psychology with uh, better structured uh, experimentation. Um, it's so interesting because um, I, I'm interested in, uh, and I imagine the listeners would be too, behavioral economics, which is sort of ties together economics with psychology uh, and shows the ways these biases impacts our decision making. There's just so many things happening. In both biology, psychology, well, there's there's three of them. So biology, psychology, neurology, learning more about um, how brains function from a physical perspective, how they function. Uh, I guess this would be more like a software approach, right? So uh, you know, you put in these inputs, that outcome these outputs, but uh, it's not always what we expect. We may think we're rational, but that's not actually what happens. So.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've made huge advances within psychology within you know the last forty years or so. It was in the I think the late seventies that Kahneman and Tversky were coming up with a lot of their groundbreaking work into psychological biases and the ways that people are not always rational and that we don't realize when we're not being rational. Our brains just do a lot of work behind the scenes to shape our beliefs and our judgments, our expectations. And so they laid a lot of the groundwork for this. But when it comes specifically to the psychology of conspiracy theories, it's really only within the last five, ten years that a lot of psychologists have been focusing on this question. Before that, there was like a scattering of uh, scholarly insight into conspiracy theories, mo- mostly from philosophy. Um, and I think there, there are some problems with that literature, primarily with the definition of conspiracy theory, like we talked about earlier. Um, Some of the philosophy literature has defined it as just any theory about a conspiracy, which is not how people use it, I think, and so it's not a really useful starting place. But yeah, within the last five or ten years, psychologists have started looking at this, started looking at the way that these biases that we all have can affect how we interpret information from the world and can lead us to see patterns, whether they're really there or not, can lead us to see intentions, whether something was accidental or planned. And so all these biases can add up and can lead us to perceive a conspiracy sometimes, whether one has occurred or not. Well,
1: you have to be careful about uh, criticizing the philosophers or the next thing you know, you'll be on a train and then all of a sudden you have to decide whether to switch from one rail and cause the (laughs) train to crash or, or (laughs) go straight, but it's just terrible. They'll put you, they'll put you in a dilemma.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I better be careful. I'll watch my wife.
1: (laughs) So I guess, um, in a world where conspiracies are always going to exist, what can we do to protect ourselves from becoming conspiracy-minded?
2: Well, I think it's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. You know, as, uh, as we've mentioned, conspiracy theory is not easy to define. And there's always this issue of, you know, conspiracies do happen. And so any given conspiracy theory might be true. And so we can't write them all off just on the surface, because they've been called conspiracy theories. But on the other hand, we shouldn't uncritically accept them all, because, of course, they're not all true. And so it's difficult. And then we have these biases, and I think the more we learn about these biases, hopefully, the more we can be wary of our beliefs, and so we can, can try and ask ourselves, is it possible that my belief is being shaped here by one of these biases? Like, for example... One of the biases I talk about in the book is uh, called the intentionality bias, which is basically when something ambiguous happens in the world, our brain, by default, assumes that somebody planned it, that it was intended by somebody. And so of course we can override that belief, sometimes we know that not everything is intended, But some research that I did shows that people who are more susceptible to this bias are more likely to believe conspiracy theories, because conspiracy theories tap into that worldview. They say that everything was planned by the conspirators. Nothing happens by chance. And so when something comes along that's completely ambiguous, like a good example of this is the disappearance of flight MH370, which, you know, for a long time, there was just no evidence one way or the other to know whether it was a complete accident. It just fell out of the sky or did somebody do it? Was it a terrorist hijacking? Nobody knew. And immediately you saw all these conspiracy theories flourishing. You know, that was almost a bigger story than the event itself was look at all these conspiracy theories that people are coming up with. And so I think that was a good example of this completely ambiguous event and people's brains whispering in the back of their mind there's something to this. Somebody planned this to happen. And so when we find an event like that, and we find ourselves being drawn to these conspiracy theories. You know, I think it's good advice to take a step back and think about is it possible that my brain is making assumptions here that I'm not immediately aware of?
1: Yeah, I think um, I th- Steve Novella has talked about on his show, uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, quite a few times about how there is a disparity between the effects that can be caused by very small agency. So uh, like if Lee Harvey Oswald took a rifle and shot JFK, he took down a presidency, but he's just a guy. And that's, that doesn't seem fair or right that something so simple, someone so unpowerful could have caused so much, you know, chaos and that there's a natural inclination to expect that, because of the the outcomes that surely there must have been something more complicated something more powerful and mysterious going on and um i think that humans have a tendency to look for cause and especially for agency in, in situations where there may not be as specific a cause as as as, as they want it there to be that their that their mental models would suggest right um yeah,
2: absolutely this is another bias that i talk about in the book the technical term for it is the proportionality bias that's it yeah which basically means we expect that an event an outcome will be in proportion to its cause so as you say we don't like to think that something so small can cause something so big we don't want to think that just this one lone gunman who nobody ever heard of before could get out of bed one day and cause something so huge, something world-changing. We don't want to think that that can happen. It doesn't resonate with this bias, this proportionality bias that's built into our head. And so then some people suspect a conspiracy and you hear those ideas and that sounds more plausible because a conspiracy is a bigger cause, you know, a vast conspiracy involving at least dozens or hundreds, potentially thousands of people going on through time. That's a big explanation, and so it's more befitting a big event. And a, a, another example that I like to contrast the Kennedy assess- assassination with is the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, which I think uh, would ha- would have had very different effects if it had been successful. You know, nobody, either at the time or since, has really bothered to come up with conspiracy theories about that because it was a small event. You know, president got shot, but he lived to preside another day. I think if it had been a bigger event, if Reagan had have died, which he very nearly did, then we would have seen a lot more conspiracy theories about it because people would have been looking for a bigger explanation.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. I think um, there's the other thing that goes on where um, whatever the outcome is seems to be... uh, like that there was intent to it, right? So um, this happens in evolution, right? So we are here and we're clever and everything we know about has a cause. So therefore, we're probably the reason for, you know, we're the outcome. We're the logical outcome. It was all about us, right? So, and that's kind of the basis for so many religions and and the idea that, that, you know, everything was intended to make us. And that same kind of thinking is kind of uh, tied in with the book I'm working on about technology, which is people tend to think that, oh, well, you know, technology comes because someone sits down and from end to end, you know, they define what they want to make. They want to make an iPhone or whatever. But, But really, it's a whole bunch of crazy, unexpected discoveries had to happen. And there's all this connectedness. And that iPhone is just one possible outcome, and it's just the one that happens to be successful right now. But there, there could have been many other iterations. In fact, there were right. Uh, But you only you tend. It's almost like uh, the what is it called the survival fallacy? The survival uh, when you like um, the uh, the the one that wins. You know, like it it has sort of. uh, You know, I've lost my train of thought. But basically. I was thinking along the lines of how the successful thing that we see, uh, whether that's the outcome to uh, an event or something that's being created or a a policy, that 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 was always what was intended. And that may not necessarily be the case. So I think I'm just going to edit that part out because I got rambly on it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good point. It makes me think there's a little bit of research into counterfactual thinking when it comes to the First World War. And even by asking historians and political scientists, do you think that events could have gone a different way? Do you think the war could have been prevented? And most people, even scientists, even scholars who work on it will say, no, I don't think so. I think everything was leading up to the war. Even, you know, if the Archduke Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated, then things still would have gone that way. But, you know, I think that's not necessarily the case. Or at least it's it's hard to come up with a good argument. Why? Because, you know, you can equally well make the argument that the assassination almost didn't succeed. It very nearly could have gone a different way, the Duke could have survived. And, you know, without that, to light the fire of the First World War to set things off, then maybe all the tensions would have dissipated, maybe things would have gone very differently. But yeah, like you say, we're not very good at thinking about different possible outcomes.
1: It's true. Well, we're almost out of time, so let's hop in on that last question. Um, What's your favorite monster? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, So I think I'm going to say the Illuminati. Uh, No, I feel like this could be, for some listeners, perhaps this could feel like stretching the definition. And so I want to justify it a little bit. You know, the Illuminati was a real organization, a real secret society that was set up in the late 1700s and very shortly Disbanded. It was made illegal by the government because they really were up to some slightly spooky stuff trying to in- infiltrate the Freemasons and change society a little bit. You know, they were a little bit spooky like that. And so they were outlawed, made illegal and went away. But then there was a the French Revolution not long after that. And they became this huge villain, this specter that was accused of orchestrating the whole thing of attempting to overthrow all the governments of Europe. And so they became this huge villainous monster, I think, that could be blamed for all the ills, all the upheavals in society. And then they went away for a little bit after the French Revolution. There, were a lot of, there was an Illuminati panic for a few years, but then it died down because I think there wasn't an Illuminati. There was nothing to pin your theories on. And so it went away, but then it kind of arose again in the late 1990s. Uh, especially in the world of hip-hop there were a lot of uh, rappers who were talking about the illuminati and then that evolved into the idea that like Jay-Z and Kanye West and all these other musicians and artists are members of the illuminati that they're up to no good or at least that they're being manipulated by the illuminati and uh, so this is like a a pastime for a lot of people is finding all these clues about the illuminati looking up music videos and, like, the Super Bowl halftime show and stuff like that. Would you, you say finding- that
1: uh, would the hip-hop is uh, Illuminati by nature? What?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> yeah, so I think the Illuminati is, uh, is uh, it's become this monster that occasionally pokes its head out and uh, makes a few people a little bit worried. But it exists only in their imaginations, or at least that's what I would say.
1: Well, that's what you would say if you were part of it, right? Right, the conspiracy, right? So, <laughs> absolutely. It's funny though. But have you? Are you a gamer by any chance? You play board games, card games?
2: Um, a little bit, not as much as okay. I'd like to.
1: Well, that, there was a, a fascinating game that came out in the '90s from uh, Steve Jackson Games called uh, Illuminati New World Order. It was, they shortened it to NWO, well, but it was a collectible card game. And in the card game, basically, you play other people who. Are representing um, secret world powers, and then you can set up power structures using pop culture references. Like you can control people from Congress or uh, the NRA or the Greenpeace, and it, it's you would love it. I I can promise <laughs> you. You should look it up. You would love it. Uh, it that sounds it, fun. I never heard. It's, it. a, it's a ton of fun, and it's right up your alley. I think <laughs> you would find it a, a, a thrill. And my kids are watching this show called Gravity Falls, and one of the villains on that show is. Uh, uh, represented as a, uh, a pyramid with one eye. And um, he's, uh, I mean, the show's full of uh, Illuminati references. It's just interesting how this has gone from being, uh, in some ways, uh, a real threat that people were concerned about to being this amazing pop culture go-to shorthand for any kind of overarching conspiracy theory.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's, you know, I think for a lot of people, its it's like a punchline. Right? it's it's entertainment. There aren't many people who genuinely believe this to be true. I don't think I haven't seen surveys, but that's my suspicion.
1: But they are <laughs> out there. I know they are. <laughs> I well, mean, it, the people it, who it believe of- it, I I, I I run into them from time to time. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are a few, yeah. But I think you know, it's uh, I think hip hop had a lot to do with it, really rejuvenating these ideas, which makes sense because hip hop was always about sampling and remixing, taking old stale ideas and making them relevant again. So I think it's it's interesting and it makes sense that hip-hop was the one to revive these old ideas.
1: So I don't know. I've, I'm not a, a big hip-hop listener. Are, are they doing anything with the David Icke Lizardmen?
2: Uh, yeah, there's a couple of rappers who talk about that. There was one in the uh, – it was really in the mid-90s that a lot of – well, a few rappers started talking about the New World Order and the Illuminati – and even then, it was mostly kind of a joke for some people. Well, they're like the KLF.
1: Uh, they're not really rappers, but uh, they did their uh, Glorified Ancients of Moo Moo, uh, which was tied to the uh, Illuminatus uh, Robert Anton Wilson books. So, yeah.
2: yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's out there. It's out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say there was, uh, there was a rapper called uh, Cannabis in the 90s, and he had this great song called Channel Zero which is all about the New World Order and aliens and how they're infiltrating society and stuff. And they even, uh, he mentioned Carl Sagan in the song as being part of the plot, like covering up the reality of the existence of aliens. And that got my attention because obviously, like many listeners, I would assume I'm a huge fan of Carl Sagan. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) That was a nice little shout out in that song.
1: That's really interesting. I'll have to look that up. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I, I highly recommend your book to our listeners. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. Um, because this is way more than just a, a litany of conspiracy. It's just, it's a lot about the psychology and what, what makes our minds work the way they do. I think, uh, our, our listeners will really get a kick out of it.
2: Well, so, thank you. I
1: hope so. So Rob Brotherton, thank you for visiting with us today on Monster Talk. I really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. Me too. It was my pleasure.
1: Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today you heard an interview with author Rob Brotherton about conspiracy theories and the psychology that drives them. A link to Rob's book, Suspicious Minds, will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on the show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Or at least that's what they want you to think. As a reminder, there is a big skeptic convention coming up in October from CSI. Here's Barry Carr and Nora Hurley to discuss.
0: Barry, I hear CSI is having a fabulous Las Vegas trip coming up this October. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Or yes,
3: PsychCon Las Vegas. It's our fourth SICON conference. It's at the Excalibur Hotel. Which have you? Are you familiar? No, with Vegas? I'm, I've
0: never. I'm not familiar. Well, That's for rich people. I'm <laughs> I'm poor, so.
3: But it's the big castle have a joust tournament.
0: Can I be a princess?
3: You you could be a princess. There's (laughs) kings and horses and jousting tournaments and magicians. It's going to be great fun. We have workshops. There's five workshops, including things like investigative techniques, skeptical activism, mind reading. How to, We're going to teach you how to read people's minds. Oh,
0: Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this.
3: <laughs> well, there's some people's minds I don't want to read. but <laughs> hey. So, yeah, we got all these events going on. I mean, there's okay. costume party. Skeptics love to dress up in costumes. I don't know why. <laughs> we have two magic shows, Jamie Swiss and Banachek, who works with Chris Angel.
2: Oh wow! Uh, so Banachek's
3: going to be there. He's a wonderful mentalist. Uh, there's there's just so much stuff going on. Workshops. We have a uh, Houdini seance. We're going to bring Houdini back from the dead. Finally, he's never come back before. But this year, we we have a feeling.
0: Well, uh, Barry, right, who's even going to be there? You haven't even gotten to the speakers.
3: Oh, the oh yeah. the speakers. That's yeah, the, the main part of the whole thing. Well, right, the, the main it's the main part. Well, we have speakers like Michael Mann on climate change, Kevin Folta on GMOs. Elizabeth Loftus talking about her memory research. Oh, cool. uh, Jill Tarter talking about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There's Eugenie Scott. There's Lawrence Krauss. Oh, Richard wow. Dawkins. And James Randi going to be there. I mean, I've been talking five minutes. I haven't mentioned Randi yet. R- James Randi's going to oh, be there. Oh, that's awesome. And one person I'm really looking forward to seeing is Olivia Newton-John.
0: She, I mean, she's not going to be at the conference, though, right?
3: No, but she's in Vegas that weekend.
0: <laughs> Barry, I don't think she's going to come to the conference.
3: Well, she might not come to the conference, but she's just near there, so you know, who knows? You're not going
0: to leave the conference to go find Olivia Newton-John, Barry.
3: Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If you had the opportunity to see Olivia Newton-John, wouldn't you take it?
0: No. No, <laughs> no. I would go to the awesome conference you just I'm told to do me about. Both. I'm going
3: to do both. I'm going to be in two places at <laughs> once. Right after you once.
0: invent time travel. I'm going
3: to be in two places at once. Don't tell the skeptics I said that. <laughs> Can we invite her to the karaoke anyway? Barry, let's just say
0: I don't think she's going to be hopelessly devoted to coming to karaoke.
3: But she is the one that I want.
0: All right. If you guys want to come on out to the conference, you can register at...
3: CSIConference.org.
0: You guys should register. We're all going to be there. It's going to be really fun. Don't miss out. There's a castle.
2: (laughs) There's a castle.
1: You can find me tweeting at Dr. Atlantis on Twitter wants to support the show why not give us a review on itunes or google play your reviews help us get new listeners too lazy to write a review no problem how about telling a couple of friends about the show have no friends no problem you can find many other monster talk listeners by joining our facebook group just search for monster talk all one word in your facebook client monster talk theme music is by peach stealing monkeys thank you sincerely once again for listening
3: Skepticism. Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic. The quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for
2: $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story